0: What are the main questions you would want to ask Phil Scala?
1: Number one, was Tim telling the truth about how he perceived the skewing of the process? Number two, did it really make a difference who was reffing a game with respect to the outcome of the game? Number three, were the referees and the NBA cooperative in the process? Or was there any effort to hinder the process?
0: Earlier this week in Manhattan, I interviewed defense attorney John Loro about the Donahue case. Here's how he described former FBI agent Phil Scala.
1: Phil is like a third century Christian stoic. He takes virtue and honor and faith very seriously. And whatever Phil tells you, you can go to the bank with. So if he had testified under oath, we would have learned the reason. The government fought viciously and vociferously to avoid him testifying.
0: Scala never got to testify, and his take on the NBA betting scandal has remained a mystery.
1: I have no idea. To this day, I have no idea. I do know this. We'd get an honest answer from Phil, either one way or the other. He would tell it straight.
0: But now Scala's here in the flesh, at a diner in Howard Beach, New York, ready to tell me a story I've been waiting to hear for eight years. all fans have ever wanted is the truth. I'm Tim Livingston, this is Whistleblower. Episode nine, The Bigger Thing. For a man who's larger than life, Phil Scala was smaller than I expected. I had about an inch and a half on him and I'm by no means Rashid Wallace. But Scala had a presence. He sat down across from me in the booth, and his first words were music to my ears.
2: You know what? I'm kind of motivated only by duty to make sure that the right story's told, because, you know, I really don't have any motivation to be part of any bigger or better thing. You know, this thing over here, if I can help you a little bit, I'll help you. It's 12 years ago. It's no. both fucking years I ago. Know. Are you fucking kidding me?
0: <laughs> but you know, we talked about it—the investigation. It never—you never got to do your job, and so people are still interested. Yeah,
2: but you know what? We were okay with it because you know what? It—it—it it, it gave them pause, it gave the NBA pause. It gave them pause to know that we suspect something was going on, and Congress knew about it. It was national news. The nation knew about it. They were this close to having their brand become like the WWF. And we knew it and they knew it and they fought like hell. I could really give a shit. You know, we're putting away murderers and drug people and international cartels. This was like not a big deal to me. So could we have... Push forward. We weren't interested. Could we have gone into the NCAA? Yeah. Could we have pressed some of the other refs? Yeah. Could we have tried to make the case against the front office of the NBA? Yeah, but the harm had been done. When they leaked in the New York Post the front page with Murray Weiss, and Murray didn't even know who it was, but he was their puppet, and he put a gag order on all the owners, and everybody we subpoenaed came in with a $900 return. Had that not happened, and the agents put a wire on Tim, it would have been a different
0: story. These were Scala's first words to me about the scandal, and I'm trying to play it cool, but my jaw is on the floor." Scala held his fingers a half-inch apart when he said that they, the NBA, were this close to having their brand become like the WWF. One of the most respected FBI agents in the history of the Bureau just looked me in the eye and told me, matter-of-factly, that professional basketball was a half-inch away from becoming professional wrestling. Scala confirmed that he believes that the NBA leaked the story of the scandal, that Murray Weiss was a puppet, and that David Stern leaked the story with the goal of shutting down the investigation and shutting up anyone in the league who might talk to the FBI, i.e. Mark Cuban. He even, out of nowhere, implied this permeated college basketball. Had this investigation been allowed to continue, the integrity of the NCAA might have also been in jeopardy. Scala wasn't distraught about the investigation coming to a close because he was focused on solving murders and taking down cartels. But based on what he's already told me, I can't stop thinking about what the FBI would have found if they wired up Tim Donahue. What do you think would have happened if you guys were able to wire up Tim? Well, Well, I
2: I mean, listen, we listen to cooperators. We trust cooperators. But, you know, once they lie to us, it's over. Outside of that critical philosophical difference we had with Tim, where he says he never deliberately, and I said, in judgment calls, you did. He admitted in judgment calls, yes, but it was always that little divide. I was gonna do anything for him unless he acknowledged that his judgment was tainted. He came to that, but he always went back and forth. But Tim is a flawed character as well. When we were evaluating utilizing him, he had a lot of problems but he cooperated and we believe that what he said was the truth
0: about the nba yeah
2: but you know you know what you're going up against you're going up against a commissioner who was like the number one commissioner in the united states you're going up against a brand and owners that have big money in it and they were not going to allow this to basically morph into something that was going to
0: diminish the brand and the credibility. not going to happen. So the FBI believed that Tim Donahue was telling the truth about the NBA. What was that truth, exactly? Well, as we've discussed, Donahue told federal agents that to increase television ratings and ticket sales, top executives of the NBA sought to manipulate games using referees. Donahue elaborated that the league had company men referees who always acted in the interest of the NBA, and that those refs rigged some of the biggest games in NBA history, the 2002 Western Conference Finals being the preeminent example. If Scala believed what Donahue was saying about the NBA, he believed both of those things to be true. And if the FBI believed those things to be true, the NBA wasn't close to becoming the WWF. It was the WWF. I next asked Scala about his meeting with David Stern in the NBA. He put on his reading glasses, reached into his briefcase, and pulled out a notebook from 2007. You know,
2: I, I can't. I you know, I, I wanted to give you a little uh, based on your questions. I have my archives. Is it, it would take me half? It would take me half a month to go through but this is what basically stopped the undercover, that's what stopped the Title III investigation.
0: Scala has notes from his meeting with the NBA, which took place on June 22nd, 2007. He also has a clipping in his notebook of Murray Weiss's New York Post article, which was published on July 20th, 2007.
2: The date is important. The meeting took place June 22nd. 2007, at the commissioner's office, then this broke July 20th."
0: The timeline here is important, so let's walk through it one more time. The NBA learned about the scandal on June 22nd. Almost a month later, on July 20th, Murray Weiss's story was published on the front page of the New York Post. But between those dates, the NBA did something else that went almost completely unnoticed. So we believe, we suspect that he hoodwinked
2: the major networks out of billions of dollars. And nobody ever did anything about it. Because it was the good old boy club. But how could the stockholders not do anything about it? Hang on, he basically renegotiated it much too early. This happened on June 27th when he pushed it forward. June 27th
0: was five days after our meeting. Five days after the FBI told David Stern that the biggest scandal in the league's history was coming down the pike, the NBA signed a $7.4 billion TV rights deal, a year before the previous agreement was set to expire. The NBA's ratings and viewership had been in decline since 2002, but Stern still managed to procure a 20% increase over the previous television rights pact. When Scala says that the NBA hoodwinked the networks out of billions of dollars, he's referring to the fact that the NBA neglected to inform their TV partners about the Donahue scandal and rushed a multi-billion dollar deal to the finish line in 2007 when the agreement wasn't set to expire until 2008. Ratings in decline, the biggest scandal in the league's history, days from taking over national headlines, the NBA signs a $7.4 billion deal, nobody bats an eye. Here's what ESPN and Turner Sports had to say after the
2: scandal erupted. ESPN's executive vice president of content, John Skipper said, we believe the NBA acted in good faith. We don't expect this to have a material impact on our agreement. Turner Sports, Sal Petruzzi added, we weren't made aware of this investigation prior to the renewing of the deal. We'll continue to support the NBA, but let's be real. What could the networks have said They had been lured into another brilliant David Stern trap, and they knew it. If they admitted that they hadn't done their due diligence before agreeing to a multi-billion dollar deal, they'd look like buffoons. So really, they only had one option, smile politely, keep paying the NBA, and hope that Stern could right the ship.
0: The timing of the 2007 NBA TV rights deal, signed five days after the FBI informed the NBA about the Donahue scandal, left Scala shocked. He couldn't believe the league would do something so blatantly unethical, and he also couldn't believe that nobody ever did anything about it. And the deal didn't expire until 2008.
2: Yeah, no, it was huge. Nobody got excited about it. Yes, the SAC told me, says, Phil, we, this is not right, yeah, give it to the white collar people
0: to the SEC did contact it, you?
2: No. I, I told my my boss. I said, go talk to him. So, you know, you know, we were part of the organized crime branch. It got crazy because, you know, once it started leaping out, it was a frenzy. All the news reporters knocking on doors. These people, we understood, Stern's people, sent people to Congress. Congress wanted an inquiry on it. They wanted to inquire about it. He sent troves of people to Congress
0: <coughs> to basically... Calm it down, calm it down, he did. After the NBA betting scandal broke, Congressman Bobby Rush of Illinois sent a letter to David Stern and said that he was monitoring the situation and considering holding a hearing. Stern, in response, sent lobbyists to Washington and no inquiry ever took place. We were in touch with Bobby Rush's team and were hoping to arrange an interview, but unfortunately, he's had some bigger fish to fry. But the timeline, according to Scala, is that Stern was informed about the scandal on June 22nd, signed a $7.4 billion TV rights deal on June 27th, leaked the story on July 20th to stifle the FBI's investigation, issued a gag order on the entire NBA community immediately after, and then sent troops to Congress to extinguish any inquiries. 2007 was quite the eventful summer for the former commissioner. Congress wanted to investigate, yeah. and Stern sent tropes of people.
2: And, well, I, I, tropes. I heard he sent people to Washington to calm it down, lobbyists, whatever they're doing. But that's how that happened. Um, Thank you. Uh, We looked at his stories about, you know, Dick Bavetta, Joey Crawford, Mark Wunderling, other people. Uh, you know, we had three areas of associates who were meeting owners and players. There was a list of people who did that, people who were violating the, the code, NBA code, who were going to casinos
0: and gambling, and people who were actually betting on sports like he was. is reading from his notebook. These are the notes from his meetings with Donaghy that include Donaghy's allegations about fellow referees Dick Bavetta, Joey Crawford, and Mark Wunderlich being company men. Referees forming relationships with players and owners that affected how they officiated games, and finally, refs who were betting on sports. People within the NBA?
2: Refs, all refs.
0: Yeah. Betting on the NBA? Betting on sports. Betting on yeah. sports.
2: But that was prohibited. And then we interviewed all the NBA observers, the people that Stern had out there and says, he never threw a game, He never threw a game. We watch. we do this, we did that. I don't believe the word they said.
0: Because they were biased, they weren't independent. An observer's job is to watch a game and grade a referee's performance. Because observers were employed by the NBA, Scala questioned whether they could do their job without bias. He didn't know if any other referees besides Donahue were betting on basketball, but the fact that some of them were betting on other sports seemed to indicate that Donahue was just a small part of the problem. And the fact that observers were receiving a paycheck from the NBA meant that they were motivated to disregard anything suspect and only observe things that denoted a clean, Fair game.
2: We did a profile of Tim Donaghy. His father was a college ref. Stories about his wife, Cardinal O'Hara High School, the incident he had with Rashid Wallace. A number of different things that you know he was not a good person in his day. And then his relationship with uh, Tommy Martino. I, I interviewed Martino. Nice kid. And then we were involved. You know he got Stern, got Pedowitz involved. Larry Pedowitz. And he had people from the seven retired assistant U.S. attorneys who worked on that case, all $900 guys that I know, high-priced attorneys. Every time we did an interview, they were there. And uh, Pedowitz, you know, kind of acknowledged some of the things that we had about gambling and smoking marijuana and this and that, and they changed some of the rules. But they stayed away from the bigger thing. Was there a connection between the front office and the supervisors on the court that basically put their thumb on the scale to make sure that the championship games are going to be in areas that rendered
0: high advertising revenues. Petowitz's report stayed away from the bigger thing. The question of whether the NBA's front office, referees and referee observers conspired to assure that big market teams were going to play in the NBA championship. For the last 13 years, the NBA has been able to sidestep questions about the integrity of its games because of David Stern's tactics over the course of the Donahue scandal. Stern's cunning saved the league and saved his legacy. The former commissioner would stop at nothing to protect the NBA brand, including trying to manipulate Scala. Did Stern, I've heard from multiple sources, and if this is... Yeah,
2: God rest it. You know, he's not doing well. I heard he had a...
0: It's not insane. You know, we're in New York doing this project. We were, I think, a mile and a half away from where he was having dinner. And that and that happens. It's just, everything with this story is so unbelie- unbelievably bizarre. But did he... I've heard from multiple sources that in that initial meeting or afterwards, he either openly or subtly as to whether you might be interested in working in the endgame? Well,
2: yeah, yeah. I th- I've told that to people. Let me see if I have what would happen here.
0: Scala began flipping through his notes again. In March 2008, a little over nine months after his meeting with Stern, Scala would turn 57, the FBI's mandatory retirement age. Stern knew Scala was approaching retirement and wouldn't want to stop working so he tested the waters, to see if Scala would be interested in a job within the NBA. Scala declined, but the maneuver was quintessential David Stern. The best way to silence someone with information that could hurt the NBA brand? Put him on the payroll. Much like a retired referee capable of backing up Donahue's claims, Scala was a threat, but he wouldn't be a threat if the NBA was paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Scala found the page in his notebook that detailed his meeting with the NBA and continued.
2: At the meeting, at that meeting, was myself, Kevin Hallinan. Kevin Hallinan was acting ASAC. He would have been one level above me. He was acting, good guy. Paul Harris was the FBI case agent who worked with me. And at the meeting was David Stern, Adam Silver, Joel Litvin. was President and Bernie Tolbert.
0: Bernie Tolbert, ex-FBI, was the NBA's VP of Security under David Stern.
2: So at that meeting, before we went up, Tolbert met us downstairs. And he said, this guy ripped me a new asshole. He says, he wanted to know, I got all these checks in Vegas. What do I have you for? I got to have the FBI come knock on him. How come you don't know what the fuck is going on? See, he was telling us a brief. And I said, I said, listen to me. We didn't have to do this. And when I go up there, I'm going to tell them we're here because of you. Because we didn't have to do this. If it wasn't for the fact that you're a retired ASAC from Buffalo, we wouldn't even fucking be here. So, you know what? Uh, We'll try and quench those fires. But I could see that the guy was upset. We went up there, we got to wait a little outside of his office. You know, it was all
0: choreographed. The only reason the FBI went to meet with the NBA was out of respect for Bernie Tolbert, who once headed up the Bureau's Buffalo office. Stern ripped his VP of security a new asshole. But if Bernie Tolbert didn't spend 20 years in the FBI, The NBA wouldn't have found out about the scandal early, and this whole story would have likely played out in a far less satisfying way for Stern and the league. Scala went on to describe the meeting with Stern in fascinating detail. I can't tell you what he said because he asked us to keep that part off the record, but I can say that it wasn't just the basketball games that were choreographed. Every detail of this meeting was staged as well. You've made a career off of reading people. What was your read off of him in that meeting? He's
2: good, you know. He came across as professional, he came across as a powerful man. Didn't make us feel uncomfortable. Wanted us to basically believe that whatever we wanted, no matter what, records, books, interviews, he was gonna do that. He was gonna cooperate 100%. What we didn't know is that the leak would come out to stop it, and that he put a gag order, because there was some. We heard some owners wanted to talk to us. He put a gag order on everybody. A gag order. All owners couldn't talk.
0: Have you ever spoken with Mark Cuban about it? He was, in my opinion, the most outspoken.
2: Yeah. No. He was somebody who was, you know, we heard open, never didn't go anywhere. We spoke to
0: people who worked with People within the Mavericks organization.
2: Yeah listen if they cooperated and this thing got bigger they'd all lose money because they now they went from credibility and professional sports down to wrestling and a lot of people lost interest in the ending i mean it's more like the harlem globetrotters than it is you know the way it should be
0: We still haven't spoken to Mark Cuban, but Scala hits the nail on the head. This story is, and always will be, about money. After talking about Stern and Cuban, the conversation shifted to Donaghy. Out of a sense of duty, Scala offered to testify on his former co behalf during the scandal, but he made it very clear that their relationship was strictly professional.
2: First of all, don't call me your fucking friend. I'm not your fucking friend. I'm really not your friend, <laughs> you know? I stood by this guy when everybody wanted to throw him under the bus, you know? I stood by, Eastern District wanted to throw him under the bus, I stood by the guy. Uh, they were gonna subpoena me, because they were gonna, John Laurel wanted me to testify about his credibility, and I was gonna stand, I will stand by a cooperator, so long as he doesn't lie to me. Listen, I was with Sammy Gravano who killed 19 people until he got caught, and then we say, enough is enough. So what am I going to do, you know? The FBI is about getting reliable information, and when people put their reputations and lives at stake, the FBI has always stood by these people until they lie to us or betray us. And I felt, well, our relationship was before he went
0: to jail, I don't think he ever lied to us. Tim Donahue was a pawn, in a chess game bigger than he could ever imagine. And Scala affirming that he felt Donaghy never lied to the FBI is huge, because now we have clarity on what that means. But the end of my conversation with Scala was the most revealing. I asked him about one of the government attorneys who worked in this case, and this is what he told me. Talented, talented
2: prosecutor. He was involved with Tim Donahue. Yeah. They
0: wanted this thing stopped, and they wanted it stopped quick. I didn't like hearing that. Who wanted it stopped, and wanted it stopped quick? A handful of the country's most powerful lawyers. Scala said some stunning things here that we just can't use, and a lot of the names are bleeped. But what he does next is connect the dots and suggest that the cover-up didn't end at the NBA. It reached the highest levels of government was best friends with who
2: was a Southern District assistant who was working with Pedowitz. Here's what it is. But he was not supportive of this case going forward, him and the other guy. They're the ones who didn't want to see me testify for Tim at his sentencing.
0: Because you add credibility. They
2: didn't want that, I said I would.
0: I don't know what happened with that. This backs up what Donahue's attorney, John Laurel, told us, namely that it felt like something was taking place behind the scenes in this case that didn't seem right. That it felt like the government didn't want Donahue or Scala on the stand. That there was a concerted effort to make sure Tim Donahue remained a pariah and wasn't given the platform to air any of the NBA's dirty laundry.
2: I, I was working with, with John Laurel on and I, and I wasn't looking for anything. It's just this, I felt that the government was being excessively hard on this guy. I know what the government does with cooperators. If they like the cooperator, they give him a fucking break. They're going to give this guy a break. I said, the guy never lied to me, so were you, why are you doing this? I don't want to suppose what was going on, but it was the, there were these questions.
0: There was something fishy.
2: Yeah. I mean, John and I discussed it. I think John knew that I put my reputation at risk by going against those guys at the end, but I was going to do what I thought was right. But, uh, no, listen, he's an excellent litigator, but I just had, you know, questions about why was this handled poorly? It's fascinating. It's politics. But it's hopefully it'll make a good podcast and a better movie.
0: Thank you. Thank you again, Phil. <laughs> Scala handed the waiter a $20 bill, grabbed his notebook, and left the diner as quickly as he came. I sat in the booth for a minute, shell-shocked. Am I really the first person Phil Scala has told all this to? I just sat there thinking, why me? In the end, Scala confirmed what I'd always suspected. This was never about basketball. It was about money. It was politics. It was powerful people making problems disappear. next time on the season finale of Whistleblower.
1: I haven't seen this kind of depth, not nearly anything regarding this great scandal for the NBA modern times that they managed to slink away from. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been nothing close to this done on this subject. To my knowledge, NBA documents were never subpoenaed by a grand jury or never requested by the U.S. Attorney's Office. So... That's a question that sticks out with a gigantic red flag.
2: If you look at just what's been legally bet since May of 2018, it's somewhere in the 12 or $13 billion range.
0: If you talk about illegal to the bookies, it's still probably north of probably 200 million billions still floating out there. So what are Tim's thoughts on the podcast so far?
1: I think he's a little pissed off, Tim. We knew that was coming, though, right? He likes the fact that it's coming out about the NBA. And and the thing is, I didn't know to that extent that it was that organized. You know what I mean, Tim? It's fucked up. I know for a fact that nobody was doing what we were doing, but they were doing it at a different level. And we had one referee, and what they have all of them, there are powerful forces out there that don't want the NBA to be regulated under any circumstances. And certainly the league doesn't either. So the question is, who's going to look after the game to ensure that it's being played fairly? And at this point, no one is.
0: No, I'm just going to ask you. All right. So what's our game plan? How are we getting Tim Donahue on episode
1: 10? Me. I'll get him on I'll talk to them
0: tonight. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord and the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Panella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bogakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravide for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks.